continuing our, our four-week series in Zechariah. Um, it's two down, two to go. So you could say that last week was kind of half-time. We're just about to start the second half. And I can assure you there won't be extra time, and there definitely won't be penalties. So... Um, We're actually coming now to the the last part of uh, the section of Zechariah that is contained within chapters 7 and 8. We've looked at chapter 7, uh, we started chapter 8 last time, uh, and we're finishing chapter 8 tonight. And those two chapters are the second major section in the whole of Zechariah. Now, in those two chapters, uh, we read four times that the word of the Lord came to Zechariah. But the first time was in in chapter 7, and there in verses 4 to 7 we saw that the Lord gave that word of rebuke uh, as a a delegation from Bethel uh, came. uh, And it was a word of rebuke to them, and in fact to all of the people in Jerusalem. And, And the Lord was really saying, don't worry yourselves with petty questions about fasting. I don't want you fasting anyway. Rather than worrying about whether to carry on doing what I've not asked you to do, you should be troubled by the fact that you're not doing the things that I have asked you to do. The second time was in uh, chapter 7, 8 to 14, and we saw there that the Lord said what he did require. Uh, He was interested in justice and mercy and compassion. And he then went on to show that when he'd made those same requirements uh, clear to their forefathers, they had persistently refused to listen uh, until the Lord's anger had come upon them, uh, and Jerusalem was ransacked, the temple was destroyed, and they were taken into captivity. And that word uh, ended with the Lord saying, Thus the land they left was desolate, so that no one went to and fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate. And they brought that upon themselves because they hardened their hearts and refused to listen to the Lord. Now the third uh, time that the word of the Lord came, uh, we looked at last week, that was in uh, chapter 8, verses 1 to 17, uh, and we saw that that consisted of seven statements And the gist of those points was that although the pleasant land had been made desolate because of their refusal to hear, nonetheless the Lord is jealous for his people and he is in control and he would make that desolate land pleasant again. The fourth time the word of the Lord came, uh, we're looking at tonight, That's in in chapter 8, beginning at verse 18. And we're now going to consider what the Lord said in this final part uh, of his response. This time there are three statements, so you're pleased to know that we haven't got another seven-point sermon. But there are three statements, and they're each preceded by, Thus says the Lord of hosts. And, And if you look closely, you'll see that Uh, all three of them were very clearly pointing forward. They were looking uh, to the future. 
First one is there in verses 18 and 19, and we read the words, shall be, according to the NIV, will become. Uh, The second one is in verses 20 to 22, where we read the words, shall yet come, and shall come. And then the third one is in verse 23, where we read the words, in those days. See, this was all looking forward to what the Lord was going to do at some time in the future, when the land would be made pleasant again. Uh, And I suggest that the three statements that each tell us something about that pleasant land that the Lord was going to make. Uh, they're, They're telling us characteristics of that pleasant land that the Lord was going to make in those days. Now, in those days, uh, of course, is a a messianic term. So that that pleasant land that he was going to make in those days was to be uh, the coming of the the, the messianic kingdom. So the Lord was foretelling three characteristics of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. From those three statements, we'll see that it's a joyful kingdom. Uh, It's a global kingdom. And it's a Christ-centred kingdom. So, so firstly, let's uh, consider that this pleasant land is a, a joyful kingdom. We, we see that uh, in the first statement that we find in verse 19, where the Lord says the fast of the fourth month, and the fast of the fifth, and the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth, shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts, Therefore, love, truth, and peace. So as we've seen previously, these four fasts had all been kept throughout the the period of of the captivity in order to mourn and grieve uh, over the events that are are recounted for us in 2 Kings chapter 25. It was in the 10th month that the siege of Jerusalem had begun. So they mourned and grieved over that. In the fourth month, the walls of Jerusalem had been breached, so they remembered that and grieved over it. In the fifth month, the temple had been burned. In the seventh month, the governor of Jerusalem had been assassinated. And you remember that the the question that that delegation had originally brought had been, should we continue to observe these fasts? Uh, Was the Lord at last going to give a straight yes or no answer? to that question? Well, no, he wasn't. We see that he paid no attention to the uh, observance of those fasts in the here and now. Rather, he looked forward to another time when people wouldn't be preoccupied with fasts to lament their losses. Instead of fasting, there would be seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful, not fasts, but feasts. The Lord wouldn't dignify their question with an answer. He didn't want to point them back. He wanted to point them forward to what he was going to do. He wanted to point them forward to the time of rejoicing that was to come. He was saying, there is no hope, there's no comfort in your fasting. Grieving over your losses won't do you any good. You must trust in me and look to what I'm going to do. So we see that he went on to say, therefore, love, truth, and peace. You see, the trouble was that they really loved their fasting. 
It, it made them feel good. They thought they were doing something religious, something virtuous. And all they were really doing was wallowing in self-pity over their punishment. Why had they been punished? They'd been punished because they'd not heeded the Lord. They'd not done as he wanted. And what had the Lord wanted? Well, we saw it back in chapter 7, verse 9, when he said, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. So the Lord was saying, don't love fasting and sorrowing over your punishment. Rather, learn the lesson that the punishment was meant to teach and love, truth and peace. Well, did they heed this word from the Lord through Zechariah? Well, no they didn't, did they? But by Jesus' day, truth and peace were still in short supply and fasting was more life than ever. You, you remember the Pharisee that Jesus encountered, encountered who proudly boasted that he fasted twice a week. So you see the, the escalation there. We've gone from four times a year to twice a week. Quite an increase. Uh, and in Mark 2 verse 18 we read of Jesus being asked, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? You see, fasting was commonplace. Even John's disciples did it. You know, it seems strange to people that the Jesus' disciples didn't fast. But then Jesus replied in verse 19, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Why can't they fast? Well, they can't fast because they're not sad. It would be a very strange wedding if everybody was miserable, wouldn't it? You imagine going to a wedding and everybody's glum and long faces and sackcloth and ashes and, and whatnot. That's not what, what wedding feasts are like. A wedding is a joyous occasion. People are cheerful and happy at a wedding. But you see, uh, it's a joyous occasion, occasion for rejoicing. And this is surely what the Lord was looking forward to when he said to Zechariah, the fast of the 4th, 5th, 7th and 10th months will become joyful and glad occasions and happy festivals. He was pointing forward to the coming of the bridegroom. That, that's the coming of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. His coming would bring about great rejoicing. Well, you remember when the uh, angel said to, uh, said to the shepherds in Luke 2 verse 10, where when he had announced Christ's coming, he said, I bring you good news of great joy. You see, good news, yes, certainly good news, but good news of great joy. But then notice that Jesus said that it's the guests of the bridegroom who share in this rejoicing. That the coming of the Messiah would not mean joy for all. It would only mean joy for his guests. Now, what, what is a guest? Well, very simply, I guess there are two criteria that you must, must meet if you are a, a guest. What, what, what is a guest? Well, well, firstly, a guest must be invited. You know, if you turn up at a wedding banquet without an invitation, you'll be turned away. You, you won't be allowed in to enjoy uh, the, the joyful festivities. But merely being invited 
isn't enough to make you a guest either. The second requirement is that having received the invitation, well, you must then respond positively to it. You must accept the invitation and you must go to the bridegroom. Well, the gospel of Jesus Christ sends out an invitation to everyone. You know, we often read of Jesus saying, don't we, come to me. Um, you know, for example, uh, Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, and Jesus said, come to me, all who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The invitation is clearly made to all. But it's only those who accept that invitation and come to faith in Christ who are his guests and, and receive the promised rest and, and joy. I think there are two important challenges that arise uh, from that wonderful truth. And, I mean, the first one is, have you come to Christ? Are you a guest of the bridegroom? Uh, and if the honest answer to that question is no, then there'll be no doubt that you are invited. So what, what's keeping you from coming to him and receiving his rest and rejoicing together with the other guests. But if the answer to the question uh, to, to have you come to Christ is yes, and looking around, I guess that's all of us, um, but the challenge is, are you characterised by that joy and gladness? Or are you still um, tainted with that fasting mentality that, that wants to grieve? You know, there, there should be no Christian hug clubs or no Christian eors. Now, that, that's not to say that, that we're never to be sad. You know, in this world, there will be times for grieving. Uh, and we're exhorted, aren't we, to, to weep with those that weep and mourn with those that mourn, as well as rejoicing with those who rejoice. But gladness and joy and happiness are to be the abiding characteristics of Christ's kingdom. In his kingdom, fasting is turned to feasting. His kingdom is a kingdom of great joy. Well, next, uh, let's consider the fact that this pleasant land is a global kingdom. Um, I won't skip this section, but this is pretty much this morning's children's talk. <laughs> we see uh, from this second statement, which we find in verses 20 to 22, um, firstly, in verses 20 and 21, the Lord says, People shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favour of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Now you remember that back in chapter 7, verse 2, we saw that the delegation from Bethel had been sent to entreat the favour of the Lord. But here the Lord is pointing forward to a time when it won't just be a little delegation from one nearby town, rather it would be the inhabitants of many cities. People would flock to the Lord and they would encourage others to do the same. We're told that the inhabitants of one city shall go to another saying, let us go at once to entreat the favour of the Lord. They'd be saying, I'm going. Why aren't you? You come too. 
You remember too that when the delegation from Bethel came to entreat the favour of the Lord, all they really wanted was the answer to uh, a question. And it wasn't a particularly important question at that. It amounted little, to little more than either curiosity or perhaps the desire to, to have a pat on the back for being so good at keeping, keeping those uh, fasts. But here the Lord is pointing forward to a time when many people would flock to him and they wouldn't really be coming to ask a question or out of idle curiosity. They'd be coming to seek the Lord of hosts. That they wouldn't just be coming because they might get something. They'd be coming because they acknowledged him to be the Lord of hosts and they recognised their need to be right with him. They'd be coming to seek him and his favour. You see, merely believing that God exists does you no good at all unless it moves you to seek after him. Well, the Lord was foretelling this time when many people would do that and the whole thing would snowball. It would go global. Um, it goes on to say in verse 22, many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem to entreat the favour of the Lord. You know, it would go beyond people coming from the cities round about. It would escalate to such an extent that many people would come from many nations that even come from the most powerful nations. So this kingdom would grow into a worldwide kingdom. In some ways this is a, a clearer foretelling of what had been shown earlier through Daniel. Do you remember when he was enabled to, uh, to know what Nebuchadnezzar had dreamed and, and then to interpret that? We read of that in, in Daniel chapter 2. And what he'd seen had been a, a great statue with, with a head of gold uh, and a chest made of silver and thighs made of, uh, uh, of, of bronze and then legs made of iron and feet that were a mixture of iron and clay. And that represented the, the succession of the great civilizations and kingdoms of the world that were to come as history unfolded. But then, uh, a rock that we're told had not been cut by human hands had struck that statue and smashed it to pieces. And the rock then became a, a mountain that expanded to fill the whole earth. And the rock cut without hands but it represents the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, because he was not of human origin, but was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And the rock becoming a mountain that filled the whole earth represented the, the kingdom of Christ, being a worldwide kingdom that ultimately triumphs over all earthly kingdoms. And as we saw with the children this morning, that's what the mustard seed growing into a great tree was also uh, talking about. And of course that's exactly what happened. Uh, began in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost when 3,000 people from many nations came to the Lord. And from then onwards the, the gospel message has gone out into all the earth and people from all nations have said, let us go at once to entreat the favour of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. And myself and going. So the Lord's joyful kingdom 
it is also a worldwide kingdom. Now, before we move on to the third statement, I just can't help but notice uh, that we're told that they'd be coming to entreat the favour of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. Now, three times previously in Zechariah, we've seen that the terms the Lord and the Lord of hosts have been used of two distinct persons. When we've seen it before, they've been used together to look forward to the time when the one who is called the Lord will have been sent by the one who is called the Lord of hosts. And in both cases, the word Lord is Jehovah, it is Yahweh. So these are distinct persons, two distinct persons, each one of them is God. God sent one who is God. One who is God has been sent by God. And in our present passage here, we see those two distinct persons. And each is God. The Lord and the Lord of hosts. They're both Jehovah. So in the second statement, what was being foretold was that the time was to come when many people would come from many nations in order to seek the Lord of hosts. How would they do that? Would they do it by entreating the Lord? That is, they would seek the Lord of hosts by coming to the Lord who was the one that the Lord of hosts had sent. In, in the words of the hymn, come to the Father through Jesus the Son. And that leads us nicely to the third statement. So let's uh, consider the fact that this pleasant land is a Christ-centred kingdom. We see that from the uh, final statement, which is there in verse 23. Uh, the Lord said, In those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Now, what are we to make of that? Well, firstly, what are we to understand by in those days? We go to the outset, outset that in those days it is a, a messianic term. This must surely be looking forward to the days when the Messiah has come. The fasts have become seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts, and when many peoples and strong nations uh, come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favour of the Lord. Next, what are we to understand by ten men from the nations of every tongue? Well, I don't think the number of ten is to be taken literally. Um, very often in the Bible, the, the number ten is used uh, of simply expressing a large number. So it's simply saying that many men, many people will come from all languages and nations and they will do something. They'll come to do something, and what will they do? Well, we're told that they will take hold of the robe of a Jew. Now, how do we understand that? Well, firstly, what does it mean to take hold of the robe of someone? Well, what it means is to, to earnestly entreat them. It means to come to someone, almost in, in desperation, and to not let go. It's to come and follow. It's to come, uh, come what may. It speaks of true 
discipleship. So the said that they will say, let us go to him. It's not just speaking of coming to someone and having a brief encounter or a, a, a short interaction. It's coming and staying and following. Secondly, who will they come to and follow in this way? Well, in the SV it says, a Jew. Um, some of the commentators understand this to say that, to think that um, it's saying that the time would come when the Jews would be popular and much sought after. I don't for one minute think it's saying that at all. And I say that because the text isn't talking about Jews in general or the Jewish nation or anything like that. It's very definitely talking about a Jew. Uh, and it doesn't mean that any Jew will do. It's not sort of using a Jew in a representative sense. The NIV, I think, is, is clearer in, in that it says, will take hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe. Or an even more literal translation would be, him that is a Jew. So this is pointedly speaking of one very particular person who is a Jew that people would come to follow. We're told at the end of the, the verse that the reason they would give for coming to follow him would be, for we have heard that God is with you. That this particular Jew is one that God is with in a special way. Now, who was the one Jewish man that God was especially with? Cue the Sunday school answer. <coughs> Jesus, the Father poured the Spirit out upon him without measure. The Father said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So who is the one Jewish man through whom many people would come from many nations to seek and find the Lord Almighty? Jesus. Uh, we read in John 14, verse 6, that Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. Uh, in John 14, 9, he said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. There was um, a time when many of Jesus' hangers-on were leaving him, and he turned to the disciples. Uh, in John 6, 67, he asked the question, do you want to go away as well? And Peter, it was always Peter, wasn't it? Peter replied, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. He's the Messiah, the sent one, the bridegroom. So Zechariah was being pointed forward to the pleasant land that the Lord was going to make. And we live in days in which that pleasant land is being made because Christ has come and his kingdom is being built. So we've seen three qualities uh, of that pleasant land. It's a joyful kingdom. It's a global kingdom. It's a Christ-centered kingdom. It, it depends on personal relationship with one particular person and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, are you a member of Christ's kingdom? And um, if so, may you know the joy of his kingdom, uh, desire the global expansion of his kingdom, and love 
and follow him as your king. Amen. Amen. Amen.